When hunting for a great house to buy, what could be better than finding out you can afford a home in a luxurious new subdivision built directly across from a wildlife refuge? Well, if you're in Arvada, Colorado, before you buy, you'd better hope that a concerned neighbor fills you in on the history of the area and a warning that was once received from a state health official. Because of the plutonium contamination from the fires at the plant that created a nuclear fallout cloud over the Denver, Arvada, Westminster metro areas, that he would recommend no one live within 10 miles of the plant site. Today, literally, there are people on the border of the wildlife refuge, big, huge, gorgeous neighborhood. It's called Candelas. There is not a single sign in the entire area that says that there was a weapons plant there, that there is any nuclear contamination there. All it is is the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge. Well, when you hear that you just took out a 30-year mortgage on a dream home that just might be your worst nightmare, you realize that you and your entire family are stuck in a seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we have two interviews with concerned individuals on the front lines of nuclear actions. First, we talk with Alicia Casey of the group Candelas Grows about the struggle by neighbors to keep what's being labeled a wildlife refuge surrounding a nuclear superfund site closed until and unless comprehensive testing is done for ongoing plutonium contamination. And Jean Stone of Residents Organized for Safe Environment tells us about a novel way to institute real-time, publicly accessible, 24-7, 365 monitoring of nuclear waste sites that far exceeds what the nuclear industry has thus far put in place. And it is doable, folks. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shout-outs, and more honest nuclear information than was made public after this week's press conference in Helsinki. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, July 17, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off this week with an international story that just happened. Sam Husseini, an op-ed writer for The Nation and communications director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, was forcibly removed on Monday, July 16, from the Putin-Trump press briefing. Why? 
Husseini held up an 8 by 10 inch piece of paper that had on it the words Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. But Russian authorities reportedly called this a malicious item, tackled the man, and dragged him out of the press briefing and into detention for several hours. Imagine that. A world without nukes is considered to be malicious. Those portions of mainstream media that covered the story posted a picture of Husseini being wrestled out of the room, but failed to show the sign that triggered it, and many did not even report what that sign said. That's why we are using that as our cornerstone picture of the week. And this action on the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty comes on top of the U.S. last week instructing all NATO members, all 29 countries, not to sign the 2017 Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, to use the official name. But each NATO member has the sovereign right to decide for itself. The fact that the U.S. is trying to bully the world into not signing may be the biggest boost the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons could ever have gotten. Donald Trump versus Beatrice Finn of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons? No contest there. Here in the U.S., last Saturday, some members of Congress went to Yucca Mountain in Nevada to see what they could see. The congressmen were all from states where radioactive waste is being stockpiled because the federal government has failed to take possession and store spent fuel rods and radioactive materials because they've got no solution for it. So basically, this contingent from Congress was the NIMBY factor, not in my backyard. The only Nevada lawmaker scheduled to go on tour was Representative Reuben Keun, a Democrat whose congressional district includes Yucca Mountain. He canceled, citing a scheduling conflict, which my confidential sources tell me was that he had to wash his hair. Representative John Shimkus, who is pushing hard to get Yucca put into commission, then invited two other Nevada representatives, Jackie Rosen and Dinah Titus. Titus called the tour a taxpayer-funded junket, and Rosen said it was a political stunt by Shimkus. And even Department of Energy geologist William Boyle, a co-leader of the tour, when asked whether the tunnel at Yucca would withstand heavy amounts of rain and snow, admitted, Yucca Mountain isn't watertight. We couldn't make it if we tried. Regarding the proposed so-called interim storage site, for spent nuclear fuel in southeastern New Mexico, Senator Jeff Steinborn of New Mexico, Las Cruces to be exact, is chairman of the legislature's Committee on Radioactive and Hazard Materials. He says that he has sent nearly 60 questions to the heads of several state departments in April regarding this so-called interim nuclear storage site, and only one responded, and that was with nothing substantive. Steinborn asked for details about transporting the waste through the state, safety protocols should a leak or other event occur, and how the state's oil and gas industry could be affected by the project, as well as other issues. The nerve! Who does he think he is? Chairman of the Legislature's Committee on Radioactive and Hazardous Materials? Oh yeah, he is. Also in New Mexico? A federal judge has ruled that a watchdog group's lawsuit can continue against the Federal Department of Energy because of contact with its well the Laboratory. laboratory. The 2016 suit by Nuclear Watch New Mexico alleges DOE and the contractor, Los Alamos National Security, 
Oh, hundreds of millions of dollars in fines for missing deadlines for cleaning up radioactive and other kinds of hazardous waste at the lab. In 13 specific cases, DOE and Los Alamos failed to get extension of cleanup deadlines from the New Mexico Environment Department and should have been subject to fines of $37,000 per day under a 2005 agreement with state government. The fines would now total more than $300 million, according to NukeWatch. Lots of public meetings taking place. In Ohio last month, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had to explain why Ohio's Davis-Bessey nuclear plant, which is scheduled to close within three years, is going to require a decommissioning process that could take up to 60 years, and after that, a regulated radioactive fuel storage facility will remain on the site indefinitely. Welcome to the neighborhood. And today, there was a hearing on the closing of the Oyster Creek Generating Station, which will be gone, done, out of commission as of September 17, only two, count them, two months from now. But parts of the plant itself will remain standing for nearly 60 years, that's that number again, 60 years longer, before being demolished under a plan set forth by the plant's owner, Exelon. And at the site, the used radioactive nuclear fuel, which is far from being fully spent, got plenty of radiation there still to spend, could remain in place indefinitely. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Energy Corporation, the slumlord owners of Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts, is looking to eliminate the 10-mile emergency planning zone around the reactor less than a year after it powers down for the final time, shrinking the radius under Energy's protection to its property line. Because, of course, we all know that when radiation spews out from spent fuel pools or elsewhere, that they always look at the fence line and go, oops, can't cross that, it wouldn't be nice. The facility is on track to permanently shut down by June 1, 2019, and Entergy submitted its request to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for an exemption to begin, wait for it, April 1st, 2020. That's right, April Fool's Day. It's a joke, right? Right? Tell me it's a joke. And what are Entergy's said reasons for wanting such an exclusion from emergency planning? They say the requirements are expensive and unnecessary. Well, thanks for letting the people on the Cape and in Plymouth and in Boston and potentially all up and down the eastern seaboard know that they and their lives and their health and their safety just don't matter because, hey, energy shareholders must be given their pound of flesh even if it's radioactive. And that's why, Entergy, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And a well done to the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska, which has become a solar power leader among tribal people, with 400 kilowatts of installed nuclear panels and another 300 kilowatts expected on the way. Tribal leaders say the solar push, which started a decade ago, advances commitments to sustainability and self-sufficiently, and is cutting electric bills. In Japan, listener Tsukuro Fors Lauritsen reports that an area in Hiroshima that was devastated by the recent flooding 
has the victims of the flood doing physical labor in 100-degree weather, trying to dig themselves out of the mud. There's trash everywhere, mud mixed with garbage, and dead plants rotting, so the smell is unbearable. Evacuation centers, essentially school gyms and whatnot, are not equipped for the physically disabled or older people with mobility issues, so these are spending nights in rescue operation offices packed like sardines. Japan still has people who are living in so-called temporary shelters since 2011, and the tsunami, earthquake, and nuclear disaster began at Fukushima. No word of any possible nuclear impact from the recent flooding. Japan's Nuclear Regulation Authority has said that Japan must beef up, or tofu up, nuclear security before the 2019 Rugby World Cup and the 2020 Radio, excuse me, Tokyo Olympics. According to the Japanese NRA, the planned regulation would cover radioactive substances, including cesium-137 and cobalt-60, which are widely used for medical and industrial purposes, but which could be used in so-called dirty bombs. Guys, because of Fukushima, your country is a dirty bomb. But you can't say that because that'll scare away the tourists. And through SafeCast radiation monitoring, we have learned that if you are in Namie, Fukushima, the shorter you are, the higher the dose of radiation you will get. That's because the closer to the ground you get, the more concentrated the dose. In Taiwan, state-run Taiwan Power Company has reiterated that it has a three-year plan to deal with the 1,744 unused fuel rods at the mothballed fourth nuclear power plant, but declined to comment on reports that it has already begun shipping the rods back to the United States supplier. But the Chinese-language United Daily News reports that Thai Power has already shipped 80 unused fuel rods from Keelung Port and to send another 120 rods in September as part of its plan to completely shut down the plant. The U.S. supplier, Global Nuclear Fuel Americas, is responsible for dismantling and storing the rods. So we don't know what to do with our used fuel rods, but we'll take yours. Come on down. Add to the pile. In Ghana, the Minister of Environment, Science, Technology, and Innovation has said that Ghana is looking for an appropriate land to generate 4,500 megawatts of electricity and pledged the government support to the nuclear sector. There's an excellent article, Nuclear Power in Africa, with a question mark, by Ann Garrison, that we will link to on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 369. In India, keeping in mind regular warnings by intelligence agencies in the country about probable chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear strikes by terror outfits, the Delhi police will soon have in its police control room vans a device that would alert wherever radioactive readings are above normal or beyond permissible levels. The National Disaster Management Authority has already received a prototype of the device and is in talks with police to install it. I wonder what it would take to get those devices installed in police vans around Pilgrim and everywhere else. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I know that you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this show. That's what we set out to provide at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, and footnoted, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, 
health, and our shared genetic future. In order to do this show, we incur costs, and that's why I'm reaching out for your help right now. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue. So if you are grateful for the information you get from the show, help us out, won't you? Send us a donation to help us meet our expenses. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation of any size, and you can also set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. Now, for those of you who want to make a big difference and have just a little bit of money, on the website there's also a big green Donate button that allows you to easily set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. Now, face it, that's the same as you'd spend on a cup of coffee and a decent tip. $5 may not seem like a lot to donate, but truly, it's those $5 donations every month that allow me to keep producing the show and bringing it out to you. So, please, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running as we search out and share information that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, you have my gratitude. Here's the first of our two featured interviews this week. Alicia Casey has been active in raising awareness about the radiation risks posed by the Rocky Flats' former plutonium pit manufacturing site. She's the founder of Candelis Grows, that's the local community that she's in that's right there next to Rocky Flats, and Alicia is dedicated to letting her neighbors know exactly what they're facing in their beautiful new homes opposite the plutonium-contaminated former nuclear weapons manufacturing plant that's being passed off as a wildlife refuge. We spoke on Sunday, July 15, 2018. Alicia Casey, thank you so much for joining me today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Regular listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat are probably aware of the issues surrounding Rocky Flats, which is near Boulder, Colorado. But for those who may be newer to the story, fill us in a little bit with the background. Sure. So uh, Rocky Flats was a nuclear weapons plant uh, where they developed the plutonium triggers for the atom bomb during the Cold War. And in 1989, there was an FBI raid on the plant. They partnered with the EPA. And it was the first time that two government agencies had partnered together to sue another government agency. And they sued the DOE for the egregious environmental infractions that were taking place. Um, there was illegal dumping of nuclear waste in and around the plant site. There were illegal burning of plutonium in the smokestacks, as well as a bunch of other, because the, uh, things were so poorly managed at the plant that there was a lot of um, workers complaints and, and hazards and all sorts of things happening. So uh, they shut down the weapons production at that point. They shut down the weapons manufacturing in 1989 with a full stop in 1993 and full cleanup started at that point. How full has the cleanup been to this point? <laughs> Clean. So as is the practice of the Department of Energy, they bury a lot of it in place. 
much of the weapons facility was actually underground. So rather than remediate that and take it and haul it off somewhere else, they buried, you know, they came in with big sprayers and sprayed the walls, the infinity rooms where the waste lines burst and spread nuclear waste all over the rooms and such, you know, with a lead coating and then they collapsed it and they buried it in the, in the soil there. So most of the plant is still there. And they hauled off what they found. My dad actually worked there as part of the cleanup. He was the government contractor who helped oversee the funds. So the engineers would come and tell him what they were doing and then he would submit it to the government for payment. He worked for Kaiser Hill. And so he was very adamant that they only remediated what they found which was great right because they would just find barrels in where he had been parking the day before in the parking lot underneath the ground oh my god yeah i mean they were because of the um community outcry about what was happening there they had stopped the, the trains from coming in and hauling the waste away from the weapons manufacturing so they literally were drowning in their own waste we find this at and you guys know, uh, at nuclear sites all over the U.S., right, is that people are just, they don't know what to do with it. So they literally, you know, started spraying it out of the irrigation systems. They sprayed the fields with it. They left it out on the 903 pad where it rotted for decades into the soil and leaked. Um, and then they just buried it in parking lots and went out back and had workers dumping it, all sorts of great stuff. And out of sight, out of mind, and nothing is more out of sight than nuclear radiation. So they yeah, think they right. can get away with it. That's right. Well, they haven't been. And tell us where we are right now, the current situation. And I know that there's a hearing that's coming up two days from when it is that we are speaking. Bring us up to date and sure. what that hearing represents. So the cleanup, they buried all the plant site, they put a containment cap over it, and they called it good said, we're clean, we're done. They turned the land over to U.S. Fish and Wildlife, which is a known practice. It's a program called Weapons into Wildlife, and this is what they do around the U.S. I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. And what's really concerning is that the only remediation that they did was on the Center Superfund site, which is still an actively managed Superfund site by the DOE. The entire surrounding area, so the whole site I think is around 6,000 acres. The middle 2,000, we call it the deadly donut because the land around it is the wildlife refuge and that center site is the Superfund site that's actively managed that we know since the floods of 2013 is leaking and slumping and cracking and having all sorts of land management issues. And so they never remediated the wildlife refuge that surrounds the leaking Superfund site. So our concern as citizens is that there hasn't been any testing done on the wildlife refuge in the last 14 or 15 years. And so we want them to follow the NEPA protocol, which is the National Environment Protection Act, I think. And so we're asking that they perform new studies on the soil in the wildlife refuge and prove that it's safe. And that's what the lawsuit is about. So on Tuesday, we have an all-day hearing with experts, which last week there was a motion by the defendants, which is U.S. Fish and Wildlife, to quash our 
expert witnesses and the judge ruled that all but one were allowed to testify, which is great. So we have a list of scientists that have, some of them are former DOE employees or were contracted by the DOE to do testing out there while Rocky Flats was in production. Um, and so they're going to testify what is the danger of opening the wildlife refuge as it is right now. Give people an idea as to what this area is like, because when you say Rocky Flats, it sounds like it's in the middle of nowhere as nuclear sites were when they were first chosen. Absolutely. But, but tell people, what does the neighborhood look like these days? Oh, it's gorgeous. They have five hundred to six hundred thousand dollar houses right on the refuge border, uh, which is crazy, right? Because there's no such thing as the safe side of the fence. This stuff doesn't say, "Oh, we just stopped right there, and we're not going to go any further." You know, in the '50s, when they first built Rocky Flats, it was in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing around. But as is normal, when you know you have a big manufacturing plant like that, especially one that pays as well as Rocky Flats did because of the hazardous materials that they were dealing with. The city and towns around it bloomed, and there was much more development in the area, um, even though they had recommendations from health directors back in the 70s that were saying, because of the plutonium contamination from the fires at the plant that created a nuclear fallout cloud over the Denver, Arvada, Westminster metro areas, that he would recommend no one live within 10 miles of the plant site. Today, literally, there are people on the border of the wildlife refuge, big, huge, gorgeous neighborhood. It's called Candelas, which is why my group started Candelas Glows, because there is not a single sign in the entire area that says that there was a weapons plant there, that there is any nuclear contamination there. All it is is the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge. And yeah. the super fun site at the center has absolutely no signs. It is a low three foot wire fence with a government property, no trespassing sign every 20 feet. That's it. Wow. Now, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but let's go there if we can. In California, where I live, there is a law that if a realtor knows of any compromising information about a piece of real estate, some damage, some pollution, somebody was killed on site or a major sure, crime took yeah. place, they are legally required to divulge that to any potential buyers. Does a comparable law exist in Colorado that would at least put potential buyers of those $500,000, $600,000 homes on warning that they were about to go into a nuclear radiation zone? Realtors, if they are aware, are required to disclose, um, you know, but there's nothing about what it is that they disclose. So the developers had created, well, when they first heard about candelasglows.com, they bought candelasglows.org and put up their own fakey fake everything's so great website about the how safe it was and we called them out immediately and said look at this developer's site that they bought that steals our name so they gave that up after about a year when it expired we are still dealing with that with the santa susana field lab up here in simi valley which is very close to where i live where all of my requests for interviews for years i never got a response to because i was sending it to the pro nuke site 
Exactly. So they put up soil sampling tests where they tested for gamma radiation, which is the equivalent of doing radon testing. Radon is uh, gamma radiation. Plutonium, which is what was manufactured and burned and spread out there, is an alpha radiation emitter. So they said, look at how safe this is. We didn't find anything. Well, of course not. That's like going to the desert and testing for water. You're not going to find any. So that was, you know, one of our red flag warning signs that they were trying as hard as they could to make it look safe. Since then, the media has caught wind and called them out on some things, and they've pulled down some of their materials where they said land in pristine condition, most successful EPA cleanup in U.S. history. You know, some of these egregious statements that were out there are gone, or, you know, have since been taken down. But we have those original copies that we're not getting rid of. <laughs> Screenshots are such a lovely thing to have these days. (laughs) Let's take a look again at this hearing that's coming up on Tuesday, which is the day that we record nuclear hot seat. So it'll take a week until we catch up with the results of it. What are the possible results that can come of this now that you do have your genuine experts who are going to be able to testify? And what do you hope comes out of it? Really, the main thrust of the lawsuit is to put pressure on the state and and federal agencies to do the due diligence to prove to the concerned citizens in the community that, um, you know, and do the testing that is required of them. So if we win, that's what we're going to get. It's going to delay the opening of the wildlife refuge and have them make testing available, you know, do the testing, make it available to the public. And then I'm not really sure what happens after that, right? Because the question is really, we know we have allowable limits of radiation because that's something that they made up, right? The EPA says, oh, what's in the area? Oh, oh, that's it. Okay, that's the new background level. And we've seen that with flint, with the lead. We've seen that with other toxins that they do in other areas, especially when it comes to nuclear radiation. The real the crux of the matter is that there's no such thing as a safe level of exposure to weapons-grade plutonium the tiniest speck when inhaled and ingested is deadly. And so it's a community decision to keep this land closed. As a community, we have to rise up and make it so that nobody goes there. Because if, here's the thing, when I go rock climbing, my neighbor doesn't come with me. But if you go to the refuge and you bring back dirt on your sneakers and your car and your dog, and it gets on my lawn in my neighborhood, and then I'm subsequently inhaling or subjected to that, then I've gone to the refuge with you. So we want to keep it contained, closed, and safe for people that live around that area rather than opening it up to have horses, ATVs, hikers, biking, camping, picnicking, all the crazy activities that would happen out there. And here's the other thing. The Department of Energy and the EPA, no one is denying the elevated levels of plutonium there. You know, you come out to my neighborhood. I live much further east of Denver. I don't have parks that have elevated levels of plutonium in them. And so no one's denying that it's there. What's at stake and at question here is what is a safe level? And there really isn't any such thing. And we're deluded to think that there is. And the fact that the Department of Energy, you know, is pressuring the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to open this and that our common sense has become so perverted that they would advocate for recreation in and around a nuclear waste Superfund site is absolutely abhorrent. So that's what I'm up against with the lawsuit. And we hope that we win and we get some studies that prove that it's safe. But I don't know that there is such a thing.
And if you're familiar with the work of Timothy Mousseau on the ground in both Chernobyl and Fukushima, you know that even with the wildlife in the exclusion zone around Chernobyl, they have found mutations in plants, insects, birds, and now small mammals. And there's a bit of a panic going on because two weeks ago it was discovered that a wolf that was from the exclusion zone, a young male wolf, had gotten out of the exclusion zone and they were afraid that he was going to start breeding with populations of wolves that had not been exposed to Chernobyl in the same way and perhaps carry mutations with him. So there are ongoing concerns that are never going to go away. Ever. Yeah, and we have elk populations that live on the Rocky Flats Refuge. And in 2002, they did some testing on them and they found plutonium had settled in the gonads and bone. So it's there and it's not like nobody's denying it. It's there. You know, the fact that we've allowed this, I mean, the practices here in the U.S. are not nearly as stringent as we've seen in other countries around the world. Russia has closer um, monitoring and tighter practices around what was happening at Chernobyl, but the U.S., I mean, we're, we're seeing this all over. I mean, you guys know. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've been subjected to it as well. Now, with all of this action going on, what has been the response of mainstream media in your area, especially the Denver media? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, it's a, it's a hot issue. <laughs> we do get a lot of, we usually get some great response. Here's what's frustrating. All the opposition has been classified as activists. The activists say, the environmental activists say they're opposed to it. So we get decried as fear mongers. Now we get decried as people who will complain about everything anytime when really it's the community. It's the community that's concerned. It's the public at large is that's concerned. You know, when they did a study about opening the refuge a few years ago, 80% of the surrounding community said, no, we don't want it open. Keep it closed. And so to classify and minimize an entire community is very frustrating. So we're hoping for a big show on Tuesday, both at the courthouse and the two subsequent demonstrations we have. We have one at noon at the courthouse, and then we have another public meeting that Jeffco is doing to about opening the trails. You know, we're going to show up, and we're going to have the community show up, and not just the activists. And we're going to, you know, have them hear from people that they don't want this open. There are so many great places to recreate in Colorado that are not nuclear waste Superfund sites. Is there anything else you feel you would like to cover at this time that we haven't yet? It's absolutely mind-boggling. When you start to do work like this and you start to hear some of the rhetoric that comes at you and you're just like, did you think before you said that or did you just hear that somewhere and now you're just saying that to me? It's a very complicated issue and it's ongoing. I mean, Rocky Flats issues, I have activists I work with that have been doing this for 40 years, mm -hmm. uh, which is amazing to have them as a resource and a backup to lean on, you know, when we have questions about how to do this and how to do that, because they've been doing this for decades. And unfortunately we have to, because the half-life of plutonium is 24,000 years. It's not going away. And as my dad said, because he worked there, the general consensus was that dilution was the pollute. Dilution sorry. was the solution to pollution. Dilution is the solution to the pollution. And mm. it's with plutonium with a half-life of 24,000 years and that the smallest speck is deadly. It's well, we can't say that word. Would you like okay. to substitute something else? Because I do, I do have broadcast now. 
the solution to pollution is dilution. And in the case of plutonium with a half-life of 24,000 years, th that's simply just not true. It's not dilution, it's dispersion. Meaning it's not that it becomes weaker and weaker as it becomes smaller and smaller. It's just smaller and smaller lethal particles are available to make their mischief. Yes. Wherever right. they're going to. Right. Yeah. Well, I wish you and the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, I think I can speak for, wish you every success with this hearing that you're going to be having on Tuesday. And until we next do another update on Rocky Flats, Alicia Casey, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. You can reach her on Facebook through Candelas Glows. And that's spelled like candle with an A-S at the end. The meeting we spoke about is taking place even as this episode is being recorded. So we'll let you know what happened today in an upcoming show. Now, another veteran in dealing with nuclear waste, this time the highly radioactive so-called spent fuel rods at the San Onofre nuclear site in Southern California, is Gene Stone. He's the founder of the group Residents Organized for a Safe Environment. Gene has been involved in San Onofre issues for decades now, and he recently came up with a possible solution to a problem that the nuclear industry is afraid to admit that it has. Well, one among many, I know. But this one is doable. It's in everyone's best interests, and it can be instituted at every nuclear waste storage site. Gene and I spoke just yesterday, July 16, 2018, and note that when he refers to Donna, he means Donna Gilmore of SanOnofreSafety.org. Gene Stone, always a pleasure to have you with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks, Libby. It's always good to hear from you. First, bring us up to date on the current status of San Onofre as regards the radioactive waste left over from Operation and the Holtec canisters. Edison is working hard to remove the fuel from the fuel pools, and at this point, they have at least 19 canisters in the ground, the new Holtec system at the Isthmus pad. And with these 19 canisters, which each hold a Chernobyl's worth of radiation, what kind of monitoring system is in place to detect any problems, any possible leaks that might happen through the years that the waste is in these canisters? Edison has the whole ISPAS pad surrounded by monitors. They're about 35 feet in the air, about 50 feet away from the canisters, which actually is too far away to detect an early leak. So in other words, they have a monitoring system that isn't necessarily in the best placement or attunement to detect leaks as they are first happening. Is that correct? Yes. I know that you have been working on and speaking about a first alert system at San Onofre Nuclear Waste Dump for finding out if there is a leak going on so that appropriate steps can be taken. Is such a thing possible? And if so, what would it consist of? Uh, yes, it is. But let me go back in time just a little bit. I arranged to go out to Edison to see the ISPAS pad 
and they agreed and allowed me to come out and bring my SafeCast monitor with me and also to allow me to bring uh, Darren McClure, who has made a couple of SafeCast monitors that we took out there to use. At the event site, Darren and I got a reading of 324 CPM. That's counts per minute on a Geiger counter. So after some calculations by the Edison technical people, they determined that our counts per minute equals the uh, millisieverts that they pick up and the rims that they get from their monitors when they go out to monitor on site. So the significance of this uh, has two factors. First of all, it made me think, is it possible to develop an early warning system to warn our community in case there's an early leak or small crack. So I was set about after leaving there, and I called three nuclear experts that I know who do a lot of radiation monitoring. First, I called SafeCast, Sean Bonner. Uh, then I called Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds. Then I called Dan Spikes from Medcom International, who also produces the inspector alert model of a Geiger counter. And that's one of the models of Geiger counter that is used by SafeCast, correct? SafeCast and Medcom International actually work together to develop the SafeCast monitors. The advantage that the SafeCast monitor has at this point in time is that they make a solar version that will go by phone connection 724-365 to any website that we choose. So after talking with the three nuclear experts and looking at the monitors, in my proposal to the Community Engagement Panel on Decommissioning San Onofre, it was clear that we can do an early warning system, but it has to be done in a very specific way. Monitors cannot be as far away as Edison has them, and the monitors have to be monitored, which is not necessarily the case 24 hours a day with the system that's currently set up that goes to the Orange County Emergency Preparedness Team. So the way this is done, and all of these experts pretty much agreed on every aspect of this, and there's, I think there's three or four aspects. The monitor needs to be placed within two feet of any vent pipe of any canisters, and that's including the older canisters of the Areva type, which also have, have a vent on them. If that monitor is placed within two feet, and a thermal couple heat measuring device is placed there as well, that between those two devices that we could easily detect an early leak. And the reason for that is because it's close enough to collect a reading before it's dispersed by the wind. And you can imagine sitting on the ocean front as it does. There's quite a bit of wind out there a lot of the time. And so if your monitors are 50 feet away and 35 feet in the air, that can get burst. So we can tell with this system of monitoring, with every canister being monitored, we can tell if an early leak came, one of these cracks that Donna Gilmore keeps talking about, if a crack happened, we would be able to pick up an early detection because of two factors. First of all, there would be heat, a higher heat reading escaping. And second of all, we would be able to detect a higher reading. So. One of the other factors is that, to my knowledge, at any of the CEP meetings and my personal meeting with Donna Gilmore and Dr. Singh of Holtec, 
no one has ever said out loud that there would be anything coming out of this canister. So you can imagine my surprise when, when Darren and I took the reading and got the 324 CPMs because no one ever mentioned that there would be anything. All we ever heard is these canisters are going to be sealed. So it turns out that there is quite a bit of different things. Now, this is fairly low level. That is true. But you've got to remember there's going to be 108 canisters giving off readings of, of this amount or, or, or so. So we're proposing that our next step is we go back to Edison and we measure each canister to see what, what the temperatures are. And only by a radiation monitoring system that's set up that's being monitored 24 hours a day and having that open to the, to the public, that's the only way to make our community understand exactly what's coming out. And the other part of our proposal is to have an educational symposium on what is coming out, what could come out with these canisters if we develop a small leak or any type of serious leak, because I don't believe that the public is really aware of what's really possible to come out of these things. Because there's some things that are, their half-life's not very long, there's some things that have life and the extreme danger of them, like plutonium-241, 242, are quite dangerous. And, of course, cesium-136, 137 are all very, very dangerous. Have you proposed this kind of an early warning system to Southern California Edison? And if so, how has that been received? I have had two meetings with Tom Palisano of California Edison. I've brought it up twice at the CEP meetings, and there are several members of the CEP, uh, the Community Engagement Panel, that want to see this happen. Now, we just had a meeting on June 24th, and it was quite surprising that several of the CEP members were very upset when Edison tried to just go right past this and ignore it. They have agreed to meet with me again to discuss this, I do look at this as a negotiation, and it may take some negotiation, which is why we need support from people to maintain this, uh, the pressure on them to do an independent real-time radiation monitoring system out there. So we have been working behind the scenes with different cities to gain their support as well, and I think we have been making some progress there. I want to bring this back to Southern California Edison because, first of all, this sounds like it would be a great solution to a problem that they haven't exactly addressed or certainly not adequately from our perspective. And what you're saying is that even though this was proposed at a community engagement panel, which some people have called community enragement panels, that they did not respond, they did not take the bait, they did not say, wow, what a great idea, let's explore this further. What might be behind what seems to be a bit of resistance? Or am I misreading it, and are they really open to this, they just have to go through procedure? Well, there are procedural issues, of course. No plant has done this publicly for a very long period of time. The one concern that has been stated is that the state of California and Edison have this deal, and of course they don't want to alarm the public. What's the deal? The deal is that there's already been a case brought after the Three Mile Island accident. Dan Spikes of Medcom International set up 
an early warning system there. It's not out to the public, but it's something that they set up in-house to make sure that they can watch it more effectively so that nothing like that would happen again. But the judge in the case, because they, the, the state and the Three Mile Island facility tried to say, well, we cannot be responsible for public misreading the information and not understanding it correctly. The judge said that the information about radiation was so pertinent to the community that any sort of accidental misreading of the information was secondary to the more important information to keep the community safe. So that that question has already been answered by the courts in Pennsylvania. That is out the window. And with my conversations with Donna Boston, who uh, I have a meeting with here shortly, we'll be discussing this issue a lot more. Right now, her first impression was she thought it was a good idea. So I'm going to be plucking that out a little bit further in the next few days to come. If SCE gives permission to install this, how long would it take to put the monitoring system in place, and how much would it cost? I mean, is this going to be some huge multi-million dollar weight that uh, Southern California Edison is being asked to take on? Well, we haven't been to the point where we're taking bids yet. And surprisingly enough, there's several companies out there that can do this sort of thing. There's professional nuclear companies that work with the nuclear producers to do this sort of thing. So it's not like we're trying to sell one system over another. Matter of fact, we will probably need a specially designed system to just pick up all the nuclides that come out of there. But when I look at the prices of monitors, we're going to need 108 monitors. And thermal couples are fairly inexpensive. So I really can't imagine that this would cost over $150,000, $200,000 max with installation. It's just not that difficult. But of course, the nuclear industry has wasted our money more than that by the tune of millions and trillions of dollars over the years. But in reality, if I get to play any part of this, this will be as cost-effective as uh, at all possible. And when you think of the fact that they've collected $4.4 billion of our money already, a couple of hundred thousand dollars at maximum to set up radiation monitoring to give us an early warning system is not at all uncalled for. $150,000 is chump change to this industry. So they can't make the financial argument. In terms of keeping this in the public eye and putting it in front of Southern California Edison. I understand that there is now a petition in place. We actually discussed it on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat. Give us the information as to what it is and where it is so that people can sign it. Okay, so if you were to Google, I am for real-time radiation monitoring at San Onofre. Or if you just go to nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 369, you'll be able to link to it quickly. So let's say they get there that way. What does the petition okay. ask? The petition is simply asking, dear community engagement panel, we're asking for the CEP members to support the action of uh, independent, I stress, independent real-time radiation monitoring at San Onofre. And we're also asking for an educational symposium on radiation, what could come out of these standards and what couldn't. And already, uh, as of this moment, because I'm looking at the website right now, there are 599 signatures 
And we'd like to get that to a minimum of thousands. So please go and Google it or get it off of your website or my website at Rose. Get right over there and make a comment and sign our petition and support our community for what could be life-saving ability to detect an early leak at San Onofre. Gene, this is a really exciting development and a possible answer to the need for a real problem about knowing what that radiation is that's coming out and giving us a fair shot at getting out of Dodge if we have to. So we will stay in touch with you as this story develops for now. Thanks so much for being my guest again this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. That was Gene Stone, founder of Residents Organized for a Safe Environment. His website is residentsorganizedforasafeenvironment.wordpress.com. We will have a link to the petition for you to sign up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 369. Note that you do not have to be a resident of California or even the United States in order to sign. So let's reach out everywhere and get Gene those 1,000 signatures and then a lot more, shall we? Activist shout out! Congratulations to all of the activists in all of the hearings in all of the locations today. There were massive meetings and a congressional briefing on Capitol Hill regarding radioactive waste. As you heard, the Rocky Flats neighbors had all kinds of meetings and demonstrations today. And at Oyster Creek in New Jersey, there was a hearing on what's to be done with the place once it shuts down only two, count them, two months from now. Happy birthday to me. It's one of those tricks of timing that you are inadvertently talking truth to power on one of the rockiest news days or days after that we have experienced. Still, I hope that you can snag a few reporters who are up for covering your stories and word gets out. Just because the world has gone mad doesn't mean that your sanity no longer counts. It's just that in the battle for column inches, airtime, and pixels, and sanity, we've got a lot of competition today. Meanwhile, gratitude to all of you for your work, and we'll have more on those congressional hearings next week. An update on my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you're running to get somewhere and cross a finish line to safety only the harder you run, the further away that finish line gets, and you feel like you're never going to get there. That's what it's been feeling like to launch my book. Every time I feel like it's just about ready to go, bam, another challenge pops up. Nothing big or dramatic. As I've been calling them, these are the fiddly bits, but they keep fiddling. I am hoping to have everything in place to launch this month, July. So hang in there. It will happen. I promise. It's just, even now, that finish line seemed to have receded once again, just a bit, off in the distance. Here's today's final thought. I am all thought out. Have a safe week. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 17, 2018. 
Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, nevadaappeal.com, reviewjournal.com, sciencemag.org, power-technology.com, abqjournal.com, energynews.us, nj.com, capecodtimes.com, allthingsnuclear.org, nhk.or.jp, mainichi.jp, TaipeiTimes.com, JournalDuCameroon.com, HindustanTimes.com, BlackAgendaReport.com. The soul-dead cubicle drones who ate the baby and grind out press releases for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a big shout-out to nuclear hot seat listeners and followers around the world. 123 countries on six continents and counting. Along with that, a Big welcome to all of our listeners on the growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You show your love for life on this planet and care about the future by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. I am so glad I'm with you on this journey together as kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. Thanks for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page, not the podcast page. Facebook took that one down, so... Just go to the blog page, the one that's marked with the logo. If you haven't stopped by yet, come on down, check it out. Click on like, follow, post your own information, share. And you can find all of our back episodes, all 368 of them, at NuclearHotSeat.com or on iTunes. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box. You especially have to scroll down a bit if you're on a tablet or a smartphone. And that's where you sign up for one email a week, which contains the link to the latest show and a little bit of information about what it contains. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, the issue is safety. Pass it on. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. <laughs>